Well, we have, as I said, we've got a lot to cover today. This is one of those messages my wife was like, this could be two messages, and it could be two messages. I promise we're not going to stay double as long. Well, we might. We'll see. But uh, I'm going to do my very best to get through things quickly and efficiently today um, to share with you kind of what God has laid on my heart and what the Scripture really opens up to us. We're going to be in Exodus chapter number 37. We're going to be in verse 17, go from verse 17 to verse 24. But before we get there, uh, to give us a little bit of prep. Now, we have obviously been working through this study of the tabernacle. Now, we've looked at the tabernacle as a structure that was commissioned by God to the Israelites for them to build this. And it was all about restoring humanity back to God, okay? So there was an aspect of these things that had been broken. This was broken back in the Garden of Eden as we walked, as God actually, Adam at one point in time, walked and talked with God. Literally had a perfect fellowship with God. So this was a fellowship between two righteous and sinless beings. Because remember, Adam was made in the image of God. He was that perfect, righteous, sinless man. Then what happened was he chose to step outside of his character. He stepped outside, outside of what it was he was created to be to fulfill his own agenda. Okay, So we understand that is the truth of where we're at. We see this in Genesis chapter number 3, verse number 8 says this, And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. So as a result of their disobedience and their fleshly fulfillment, we see here that they are ashamed. When you see this shame of nakedness, this is a picture of sin in Scripture. Then Genesis 3, 9, verses 9 through 13 says this, And the Lord called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? First of all, understand, God knows where he is, okay? <laughs> this is like he's like hiding and God's like, man, I can't find him. That's not the case. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, this is Adam, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself, verse 11. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Okay, now this is not for the sake of Adam being asked a question that God doesn't know the answer to. What he's doing is giving Adam an opportunity, right? Here's an opportunity for Adam to be truthful. He's going, Adam, here you go. Here's your chance. Let's see how he does. Verse, 13, verse 12. And the man said, The woman who thou gavest to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. So first of all, it's, it's not my fault, first of all. It's actually your fault for the woman that you gave me. Notice that he points that out. Oh, God, it's the woman that you gave me, and she influenced me. So it wasn't me of anybody. I'm the last one. I mean, it could either be you or her. Imagine that, being caught red-handed by God Almighty. <laughs> he knows everything. It's like when you walk up and catch your kids, right? They're in the midst of doing something. I mean, they're literally like, hand is in the cookie jar. And you catch them and they're like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, um, no, I'm, are you eating cookies? No. What are you doing? I was just making sure that, um, that they're all there. Just making sure that they were safe. I was just, I thought I saw a bug in there. I was just going to clean it up, right? No, man, you are busted, caught red-handed. So here we see the long-suffering of God, though he catches Adam. Adam knows he's caught. He says, you know what? Did you do it? No. But he just plays along, which is pretty cool, because God sort of moves on into verse number 13. And he says this, as he shifts his attention to Eve. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is that that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Again, are you going to take responsibility? It was not me. Was not me. Turns out it was the serpent's fault. It was not my fault. No one wants to take ownership. 
right? The devil tricked me. So then we, God shifts his attention then to Satan. And what we find is the punishments are then laid out to this group. And as God hands out the punishments, we see here that Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. They have ruined the fellowship that they were given. God blessed them with this time. To, and that what happens is they have ruined it by choosing their own way. Romans 5 verse 12 says this, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So God's promise, he said, certainly, he said, surely you will die. If you eat of the tree, you will die. Okay. So what happens is sin and death are connected. Because of sin, death entered the world. Prior to sin, everything would have lived forever. But now this introduction of sin brings death. And the same thing is true today. Not only physically, but spiritually. Verse 19 of Romans 5 says this, For as many by, as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, Adam, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection... He has now actually given an opportunity for humanity to be brought back to God. So the fellowship that was broken back there in the garden is now being restored through the Lord. So we see this fellowship broken. Is What's cool about it is the fellowship is actually restored at the tomb. It's not at the cross. Because understand, the tomb is where the victory is actually won. It's not at the cross. That was a battle, but the victory is at the tomb. But what we see here is this tabernacle that we're studying, it's the same thing. Okay? This is the same thing. This is about restoring fellowship with humanity. But what happens in the tabernacle, the tabernacle, what it did was temporary. Okay? It made a temporary atonement. But then when Jesus came, he transferred what was temporary to what would become permanent or eternal. Okay? So we're continuing understanding as we look at this incredible tabernacle, the fact that its significance is about restoration. It is the vehicle that God will use to reestablish his creation, his time with creation. So his son, his, his, uh, the Savior... Our Lord Jesus Christ, he is pictured throughout this tabernacle. So as we're looking at the tabernacle, understand that it's picturing Christ at the same time. We also see that it pictures us as well. So as we move forward in this review, because I want to make sure we're all at the same speed, understand that it's not only talking, it's not only revealing who Jesus is, but it's also revealing to us what he will do. It's a foreshadowing of redemption. Does everybody get that? That's what the tabernacle is picturing. So whenever we, as we go back to the construction site, okay, we're now back at the base of the mountain here. And as they're doing this, now they built the outer, they built the coverings themselves. They built the, the framework of the, of the structure. They built the, um, the, the doorways. They built the foundations. So the tabernacle itself, the structure is done. Then we shifted into the inside and we moved to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the Holy of Holies, which is that sanctified part of the tabernacle. It's set aside. That's the only one day a year would a man go in there who was the high priest who was sanctified to go in there on the Day of Atonement to make a sacrifice for the people. So we'd see that sanctified part. Then we go on the other side of that veil. We go into the holy place. The holy place is the main portion of the tabernacle in there. And when we get in there, now there's three pieces of furniture, okay? Now, those three pieces of furniture, last week we visited the table of showbread, okay? And as we looked at the table of showbread, what we saw was amazing pictures of Jesus in the table, no doubt about it. But then we also saw was a shift onto what was on the table, okay? And as we looked at what was on the table, we did see a realization of the fact that it was a picture of Christ, no doubt about it, as the bread of life. But we also saw that it was a picture of the Word of God, okay? And that's what's going to be relevant for us today. We're going to hold on to that concept of the fact that it is the Word of God, the Bible, okay? And it was in 12 loaves and two rows of six, representing the 66 books of the Bible, which is 
just those cool little details that God puts in there. And it's a nourishment for a spiritual nourishment. But what we find is many people are malnourished, not because they don't have access to the Bible. Because in our day and age, we have a greater access to the Bible than anyone in any time. You can go on your phone and pull up anything you want scripturally. You can find it. Problem is most people are starving, not because they don't have access to it, just simply because they choose not to eat, right? That's the problem we have with society. So the table of showbread is in the holy place, and there's another piece of furniture sitting in there, which is the candlestick. That's what we're going to look at today, and it's got a ton to teach us. So bear with me as we go through all this information as we study in this message today, which is called the light of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with this time as a church that we can come together, Uh, Lord, to honor your name, God, to honor who you are, and Lord, what it is you've done. God, I do pray for my brothers and sisters today, Lord, that you'll help us to have ears to hear, uh, Lord, and hearts that are receptive, Lord, that you might uh, help us, Lord, to hear and to see, God, what do you have for us, God, that we might not just be here to learn, but Lord, we might here to be changed. God, I know you have spoken to me, and I'm asking you, Lord, at the bottom of my heart to speak through me. Lord, I do not want to be seen, and Lord, I don't want to be heard. I want you to be seen and for you to be heard. So, Lord, take a hold of this message. Direct and guide it, Father, that it might speak to us through a spiritual, spiritual power that's in this place. God, thank you for your presence, and thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we get started, I've got a quick little video I want to show you. And this is going to give you kind of a little bit of a glimpse. These are instructions from God. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. It's coming back. (laughs) And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. And six branches shall come out of the sides of it three branches of the candlestick out of the one side, and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. Three bowls made like unto almonds, with a knop and a flower in one branch, and three bowls made like almonds in the other branch, with a knop and a flower. So in the six branches that come out of the candlestick, and in the candlestick shall be four bowls made like unto almonds, with their knops and their flowers. And there shall be a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, according to the six branches that proceed out of the candlestick. Their knops and their branches shall be of the same, all it shall be one beaten work of pure gold. And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. And the tongs thereof, and the snuff dishes thereof shall be of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold shall he make it with all these vessels. And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. Amen. Okay, so that gives you a kind of a cool visualization. That's God's instructions of what they're to build. Now we're going to see how they did in following the instructions in Exodus 37, verse 17. It says here, And he made the candlestick of pure gold, of beaten work made he the candlestick. His shaft, his branches, his bowls, his knops, his flowers were of the same. Now, does anybody notice anything interesting about the description as we talk about it here? Does anybody notice a pronoun that's used? Again, we saw this in the table of showbread. Notice it says his, 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 his. We see this 
personal pronoun, which is tying to a picture that is within this very scripture. Take in mind, keep in mind the fact that everything within the tabernacle is going to be made of gold. It's all for the fact of it's representing deity and royalty. It is a picture of God. So as we look at this candlestick and continuing this description, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you what they actually built. Okay, so we heard what they were supposed to make. This is what they've made. And you'll see a picture. It'll pop up there. And you can look at the picture while I read it to you. And six branches going out of the sides thereof, three branches of the candlestick out of the one side thereof, and three branches of the candlestick uh, out of the other side thereof. Three bowls made after the fashion of almonds, and one branch, a knop, and a flower, and three bowls made like almonds, and another branch, a knop, and a flower. And so throughout the six branches going out of the candlestick. And in the candlestick were four bowls made like almonds, his knops, his flowers, his, uh, and it says, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, according to the six branches going out of it. Their knops and their branches were of the same. All of it was one beaten work of gold, of pure gold. And he made his lamp, and he made his seven lamps, and his snuffers, and his snuff dishes of pure gold, of a talent, one hundred, or of a talent of pure gold, made he it all the vessels thereof. So a talent is about a hundred pounds. Okay, so this is a massive thing. This isn't some little candlestick you'd put on your candle like this. This thing is the real deal, and it is, uh, it's substantial. So we certainly see that Bezalel and the men have followed the instructions because they basically do meticulously exactly what God has told them. We know that that is key because if they don't follow God's instructions, the very thing that they're searching for, which is this intimacy with God, will not be fulfilled. So it's very important. But there's a little extra detail that, mod, that, that actually God gives in the instructions that we don't get here. And it says, And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof. This is Exodus 30, uh, 25, 37. It says, Seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. So inside of the tabernacle, okay? Now the tabernacle, understand, is draped with heavy coverings. There's four different layers. This thing has been isolated and separated from the outside world, meaning that it is dark inside. There is no light coming in. They've got all these thick things keeping out. So the single light, the only light in here, is this candlestick. It is the only source of light within the tabernacle. This is important for us to understand. So this is key. It is the light. Now, what I thought would be interesting is if we look at what the Bible talks about, let's look at light in Scripture and see if we don't learn what it's telling us. There's a picture here. John 1, verses 5 through 9. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Then John 8, 12 says this, when, when spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12, 35 through 36, then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. And he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have the light, believe in the light, that ye may be the, the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed, and did hide himself from them. John 12, 46. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And there's one more little detail. In Leviticus 24, 2, it says this. Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil, olive, beaten 
for the light to cause the lamps to burn continually. He is referencing the candlestick. What we see here is there's a mention here about the fuel, okay? What is going to make this candlestick burn continually? Notice this lamp is going to be fueled by pure olive oil, okay? What's interesting about this olive oil is the way that it's made. It's not squeezed or pressed the way you traditionally would make oil. It says here that it is to be beaten, okay? This fuel, what makes it light, is beaten. So if you beat this, Olives, you're actually getting the, basically the blood of the olive. And then we reference the beating. And we take about, think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the fact that he is pictured in this light. Isaiah 53, 53 verses 3 through 5 says this. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, beaten. He was bruised for our iniquities, beaten. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes, beating, we are healed. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. A band of soldiers, that's what you call a cohort. This is hundreds of men. Understand, this is not just like ten guys. This is a large group of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns on his head, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him. And they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him. And they took the reed and smote him on the head. They beat him. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. John gives us a, uh, a little further detail here in John 19, verses 1 through 3 of the same thing. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. To scourge is to horrifically beat someone. And the, soldier platted a, platted, the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Jesus is defenseless. Jesus' hands are tied behind his back. And they are walking up and they are soldier by soldier, beating him in the face. Beaten, beaten, beaten. There's a picture here. This oil is specifically beaten to fuel the light. It is picturing our Lord. Our light, the light, was not beaten because he deserved it, but because he loved us, right? We know that he suffered and he did what he did because of the fact is he became sin for us. He bore the weight of sin. He bore the guilt of our sin upon him. So we see these beatings that are deserved for us, right? We're deserved for us. But understand, you and I still take a beating. In this world, how many of us took a beating before we came to the Lord? You know what I'm saying? Doesn't the world just beat you up a little bit, a couple of shots here and there? Sometimes brings you to your knees because you're so broken. And finally, in that broken condition, in your shattered state, you finally turn to the Lord and you go, you know what? I need help. Understand, Jesus bore the weight of that sin and bore the, the beating that he did because he loved us and because there was no other way to reach us. We would be destroyed by this world, and guess what? There would be no hope. But because of what he did, there is hope, right? There is hope. Praise God. And you know what's so cool? Is as God humbles us through adversity, and as he comes into our life, and he draws us out of that broken condition, what's so amazing is that our brokenness then becomes a tool that God uses in your life. 
It's amazing, guys. As I tell you before, every member a minister, that's your here. You are a minister. If you're a born-again child of God, you're a minister to this world. The, Bible's given a, uh, the Bible says we've been given a ministry of reconciliation to reconcile the, bro the broken and the lost back to God. So here you are as a minister, and God goes, I'm going to give you a tool. I'm going to give you the greatest tool I can possibly give you. As Paul said, he said, always be ready for the hope to tell men of the hope that lies within you. What's the hope that lies within me? August 11, 2001, I went on my knees a broken, and bro a broken man and stood up redeemed. That's the hope that lies within me. The fact that I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's the hope that lies within you. So we're to have share this story. And as I've told you before, the, the scars of your life are the bandages for someone else. Your pain is not wasted. God never wastes pain. He develops a story of redemption. And as you learn how to share your story of redemption, you give hope to the hopeless. When someone comes with a broken story, and you're all of a sudden to go, ding, 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 ding. Wow, you know what? That sounds a lot like what I went through. And you realize that God just crossed paths your life with someone else's for the specific reason that he could take your pain and suddenly bandage someone else. Has anybody ever experienced that? Oh my gosh, isn't it amazing? It's not by coincidence, man. God has a plan. Hope to the hopeless. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. My works, man, it's not about me. It's about Him. And as we share our story, man, we bring light into a dark situation for someone who is broken. It says, let your light so shine. So when we shine, we must always remember that the real difference that's going to be made is not because of us, okay? Because of our selfish nature. We are Laodicean, church, we are Laodicean people, meaning we are the, the, the seven church ages that are defined in the Bible in the book of Revelations in verses one, uh, chapter uh, two and three. What you find is there's Laodicean people. They're lovers of their own selves. They're filled with self. And that's the church age that we're in right now, guys. We're coming to an end of the church age. And as we are, man, people are so filled with self. And what happens is we do good things, and the next thing you know, we want to just pat ourselves on the back about how great we are. Forgetting who we were. Forgetting where we came from. Forgetting the fact that we're not redeemed because we're good people. We're redeemed because of what Jesus did, right? So what happens? He redeems us. He does all the work, and then we want to take the credit for the work. It's impossible. You could not do the things that you do. God could not work through you unless you're redeemed. So as God works in us, we must always remember the fact that it's not us. We are to shine as lights. Philippians 2.15 says this, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Listen to this. This is us. In the midst of a, midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You don't shine because you're a light. You shine as a light. You're a reflection of light. Okay? So it's a picture. We see it in the sun and the moon. The sun is the source of light. The moon has light of its own at night. But no one goes, man, that moon is just the brightest moon in the world. That thing's emanating light. No, we know it has no light. It's a dead rock. The light is from the sun. So we see this reflection. That's the key. So if we think about this, it's almost like whenever you and I do that, when we claim responsibility, it's like taking a picture of a sunrise, right? And going to somebody who's never seen a sunrise and go, you know what, this should cover it. You don't need to see a real one. This is good enough. That's exactly what a sunlight is, what a, what a sunrise looks like. Now, is that realistic? You're looking at a four by six. You wouldn't be like, man, this is amazing, glorious. You'd just be like, okay, whatever. But seeing a real, who's ever seen like a sunrise, it just blew your mind, man. It's like the artwork of God. You're just like, 
I wish I wasn't by myself. Oh my gosh, I gotta take a picture of this. And you take a picture and you're like, I, and you try to tell people, you're like, this just doesn't, I, this does not, that's not even close to what I saw. I mean, you just can't even imagine it. And what happens when you and I try to take responsibility, what's happening is we're taking the, the glory for ourselves and God's saying, no, 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 no. That's, that's, this is my creation. The work that I'm doing through your life is for me to receive glory, not for you. And because we're selfish, we love to get some of the glory for ourselves. And we've got to be careful not to allow that to, ham- to happen. So this candlestick certainly uh, is, is, is only a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the point I want you to see is the fact that when we look at the candlestick, yes, we see the glorious, the light of the gospel. We see Jesus Christ. We see all these things reflected in him. But this thing is just, a, just an image, just a picture. So we see pictured Christ pictured in the tabernacle. We've seen him pictured in the ark. We've seen him pictured in the frame of itself. We've seen the table of showbread. And we see again today in the golden candlestick, we see the fact that he is a picture of that light in the dwelling place. And what's really cool, just as a, a verse that I want to just throw in here in Revelations 21, um, it's so awesome. The fact that so these pictures that Jesus shows us, the fact that he is the light. Look at this in Revelations 21. For some reason, I can't get to my... There we go. Revelation 21. Let's go to verse 20, 23. It says, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Jesus is a picture, man. It is absolutely revealed to us. Now, it's all a matter of us embracing this light. We must embrace the light, because guess what? We come from a world of darkness. Who's been in darkness before? Man, prior to Christ, man, it is enveloping. It can become all-consuming. It can be something you can't even see beyond. The darkness becomes so foreboding and destructive. So what happens is, here we are. We're either dwelling with Christ, we're dwelling with the light, or you and I are embracing the darkness. As a believer, you can be in the light, but guess what? You can also be in the dark. Because the free will, our flesh, guess what? It still is drawn to sinful things. It's not until we learn to deny ourselves that we can actually embrace the light. So we look at this as a child of God. Is our name, when people look at me, when they look at you, is it synonymous with Christ? When they look at our life, the way we respond to things, the way we deal with stress and fear and whatever, does it say Christ? Or do they see our flesh? Because so many times we vacillate. One day I'm doing awesome, man. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Next day, uh, no, more me. And what happens is the, the nameplate doesn't quite fit as it should. God is trying to help us to become like him. That's this whole thing of fellowship. And this candlestick is picturing this relationship that we have with our Savior, Jesus. We're to be synonymous with him. So the first thing we see with the candlestick is the fact that, bottom line, it is a picture of Jesus. There's no doubt about it. We see that for sure. But then the candlestick tells us something else. It actually represents something else, which is really, really, really cool. God bless you. Now, let's shift our candlestick. Now, we're going to look from the candlestick. We were looking at it as a perspective of God. Now, we're going to shift to it as in perspective to the believer, okay? 2 Corinthians 6, 16, okay? Remember, you and I are pictured in the tabernacle. Here's proof of that. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, right? He says, this is us as believers. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth 
in you. So as we look at the candlestick, the light that is pictured here, I want you to understand, it tells us here that the Spirit dwells within us. And if we're a picture of the tabernacle, there is a light here. Now, I want you to, we're gonna, to give us an idea, the perspective, we're going to go to heaven. Okay, We're going to pop over to heaven, and we're going to look inside the true tabernacle, as opposed to just the tabernacle that's here, because this one's just a fake uh, just a facsimile of the real tabernacle. So as we go to the real tabernacle up in heaven, we get a glimpse into there in Revelations chapter 1, verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches, this is John writing to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. We know that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 8 tells us he was the yesterday, today, and forever. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the picturing here. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Seven spirits, okay? Well, let's look at that a little bit further. Let's go to Revelations 4, 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightning and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay? So we see that, and we go, okay, there's the seven lamps, the seven spirits of God. And people go, whoa, 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 I thought there was just one spirit. Isn't that what the Bible says? Isn't there just one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God? Ephesians 4, 4 says there is one body and one spirit. And are you called? In one hope for your calling. Okay? So there's one spirit, but this says specifically says there's seven spirits. Now, how do we figure that out? So we're going to jump back in the instructions in Exodus 25, verses 35 through 36, to get a little bit of in, insight. He says, Their knots and their branches shall be of the same. All it shall be one beaten work of pure gold. And thou shalt make seven lamps thereof. They shall light the lamps thereof, and they may give light over against it. So we see seven lamps but we see one beaten work of gold, okay? So this doesn't, as we reconcile this, we go, well, how does this work? Where do we get this? What I'm submitting to you is this, is that the Holy Spirit of God is broken up into seven different spirits. And you'd say, well, I've never heard that before. Check this out. Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Let's count those out. Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of understanding, Spirit of counsel, Spirit of might, Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Seven spirits making up one. It's picturing at this. He said, look, there's the seven lamps, but it's all made of one piece of gold. It's one united thing, but broke up into seven different parts. So we're seeing here pictured, this candlestick, man, is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God, man. How amazing is this? So with that understanding, now we're going to apply it to our lives. As believers, we desire to be filled with the Spirit. That's the desire, man. We want to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says this, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, if we relate, relate this to our Wednesday night study, what have we been talking about? How do we be a true follower? How am I a true follower, a true follower? We've been dealing with the desires of our past, those things that get in the way, our flesh. And our flesh affects our walk with God. Bottom line is, when you get saved, man, you are filled with the Spirit of God. You get it, man. And I've got an image. I'm going to show you guys a, a kind of a, a representation of this, okay? Now, I've got, this is a, a glass here, obviously. And we're going to take this. This is going to be the work of the Lord, okay? So we're going to put that in there. One drop. Now, I get saved, and man, I'm telling you what, I am slam full of the Spirit. There's just a little smidge of the flesh, just a smidge. 
Oh, man. And there's this real deep, intense work of God. Man, it shows up in my life crystal clear. Because what happens, the air represents the Spirit of God, okay? So here's my flesh. And my flesh, man, it's impacted by God's work. And look how intensely dark it is. Then what happens over time, because after I get saved, I start thinking, well, now it's easy. I'm saved. We're good. Life's good. No problem. I, you know, I don't have to, I'll never sin again. This is awesome. But then I go the next day, and somebody makes me mad in traffic. And you know what? I react. And the water's my flesh. Right? And I dilute the work of God in my life. And then over a period of time, guess what? I become more and more complacent because I'm a layout of sin. And because I accept more sin and I watch more things and I listen to more stuff. And my life, where I should be searching the Lord and I should be feeding myself spiritually, I find myself not reading my Bible. I find myself not really praying. And over time, guess what happens? The work of the Lord in my life gets more and more and more and more diluted. Because the flesh just keeps getting in the way. Because guess what? You and I, we have that Spirit of God. You know what? It's all about getting the flesh out of the way. The more I empty myself, the more Spirit will automatically fill. It isn't like there's a delay where I'm like, well, I'm going to empty myself of the Spirit. You know, my, or get my flesh out of the way. I'm going to deny myself, and then eventually God's going to come back. No. It's an instantaneous thing. As it leaves me, the air just fills this glass, man. It isn't something that takes a moment. It's just a matter of getting the flesh out of the way. And that's what we've got to realize that every day when you wake up in the morning, your flesh is ready to rock and roll, man. It's got old habits and it knows how to do what it knows how to do. It knows how to sin, man. Sin that doesn't take any practice. You're just like, man, I can get back. That was easy. Boom. It was like it just was so natural. Because guess what? Your flesh is not saved. Your soul, which was in you, was, guess what? At one point in time, you had a dead spirit. A dead spirit. And what happened was God came along and through the spirit of God, the Bible uses, now in your King James Bible, it's going to say quickened it. It brought it to life. And that dead soul that was serving flesh and sold out to destruction suddenly has a new vision and a new understanding. And boy, in the beginning, we're so excited. The day you get saved, man, you're not like, oh, I can't wait to go to a strip club tonight. No. <laughs> doesn't happen that way. You get saved and you're like, man, you know what? I'm going to read my Bible right now and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consecrate my life and I'm going to go home and I'm going to pour this out and do that. I'm gonna, we're gonna do, everything's going to be right. We're ready. Because the flesh hasn't had time yet. But once the flesh gets its feet underneath it, <clears throat> strengthens itself a little bit, gets a little feeding from the world, starts to get stronger, starts to have more influence, starts to take hold, and then the spirit just starts to reduce. Because guess what? Now I'm being filled with the flesh. God wants to work in our life. This is the battle of the Christian every single day. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lust is against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are the contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Man, if we would only choose God's way and allow the Spirit to fill us, man, holy moly. We can do the miraculous. We can do the impossible. But unfortunately, we don't. Because you understand the Spirit's there to direct us, to help us to do the right thing. And if we will do the right thing, well, the Bible says it will be filled with the fruits of the Spirit. We find that in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruits of the Spirit. And it says this, For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. But then verses 24 and 25 says this, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh. Listen to that. They've dealt with the flesh. They've killed the flesh. Those that have done this and the affections and lusts, right? Verse 25, if we live in the spirit, 
let us also walk in the Spirit. Our entire Christian existence hinges on this willingness to be filled. If you are going to be effectively used in this world, it will be because you're filled with the Spirit of God, not because you're a good person, not because you've got talents, not because you've got abilities. It is not about you. It's because you're getting out of the way. See, the work of the Lord is done through the Spirit of God, not through the works of men. It is not about us. It is about Him. When we receive Christ as our Savior, bottom line is you receive a spiritual baptism, and the Spirit of God comes within you. As I told you before, that's a quickening. You have what's called the indwelling Holy Spirit. We find that in Scriptures. We saw it in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, it says, Spirit of God dwelleth in you. We are that tabernacle. So we see the tabernacle pictured, and then we see the candlestick picturing the Spirit of God that lives within us. And what we find is the Spirit of God within us works as a teacher. John 14, 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So the Spirit of God within us, this light it is within us, is all about helping us to surrender our will to his. God's trying to direct us to do the right thing, right? Because what happens? The light, whenever, when we're emptied of self, the light shines out of us, right? It shines. It just was revealed to the world. We can't help it. It just comes out. But when our flesh is strengthened, the light becomes greatly reduced. Matthew 5, 14 and 16, 14 through 15 says this, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. So look, you don't light a candle so you can cover it. God lights that candle within us so that it can be shown, so that it can be revealed to the world. So what we find here is our flesh. If we can get our flesh out of the way, man, God will automatically shine in our lives. But what happens is our flesh manifests itself in lots of different ways. And you can see it in your emotions. You can see it in your actions. Now, it can be fear. It can be anger. It can be lust, doubt, pride, selfishness, whatever it is. All of those are fulfilling the flesh. And what we find is, because people go, why, what, but fear, why is that a big deal? Guess what fear is? Fear is a lack of faith. Because God is on the throne. Bottom line is, if God's on the throne and he knows what I'm going through, and as a Christian, I'm his child, he's allowing everything in my life for a purpose so that I might be fashioned, guess what? Fear is one of those opportunities where I can either fall to my fear or I can stand in faith, right? And what we find is so many of us, we fall to our fear because we can overwhelm with the circumstances. What, what if, what if, what if, what if? Guess what? God already knows. Our life has already taken place. We've already seen it all. He's seen it all. So God's already seen the end result. So instead of getting worried about the day-to-day, which we're so concerned with, God's going, look, do you, does your fear fix the situation? Does it give you greater insight? Mm-mm. Doesn't it just make your existence a lot worse? And guess what it does? It fills you with flesh. Amen. And suddenly the Spirit of God can't work through me because guess what? I'm overwhelmed with fear. Selfishness, whatever it is. The more I'm trying to fulfill this need or desire that I think that I need, what happens is I'm simply pushing God out of myself. I'm pushing myself away from Him. Because when you're in fear, guess what? Unless you fall in the Word of God and have your faith be developed, it just gets worse and worse and worse. We are all prone to these things. I'm not telling you, I'm not dealt with, I mean, I've dealt with every one of these ones I just listed. There's probably, I could put a whole bunch more down. But as we're dealing with this, we've got to realize the fact that God's, the light of the Lord is inside of us. And what happens with these issues of sin is the fact that, you know what? You and I are not going to touch this hurting world. We're not going to make a difference in life someone else unless we get these things out of our life. These sinful behaviors that we accept and we go, well, it's okay because God understands. And we justify in our own minds. You know what? I know I've got this issue of doubt. I know I've got this issue of anger. But you know what? It's deserved. It's deserved. 
This person has wronged me. And you know what? They deserve my anger. They deserve my wrath. Yet God says I'm supposed to forgive even my enemies, those that despitefully use me, the Scripture says. So I'm supposed to love. I'm supposed to forgive. I'm supposed to do these things. So what happens is the light that God wants to do, the things He wants to do through my life, suddenly become hampered, not because God can't do it through me, but because I'm not allowing it to happen. So what happens, we find is this, first of all, the second, it's all about illuminating the dark places in our lives. Understand, God wants to help us to understand. Second thing is being, the, so the first thing that the Spirit does is it permeates us. The second thing that the Spirit does is it illuminates us. Okay, It illuminates us. What we're going to see here is it actually works in our hearts. It lights up the dark corners of our hearts that many times we don't want to look at. Who's ever had something in your life that you knew you had to address but you didn't want to? But yet God just kept laying it on your heart and revealing it to you and making it stand out for whatever reason. The Spirit is lighting those parts of our heart. Romans 5, 26 and 27 says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. He goes, look, He's praying for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And He searcheth the hearts, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our intercessor. Praise the Lord. And you know what God's happening? Is through the Spirit of God, he's helping us to see things that are wrong in our life. We get spiritually reproved. We get corrected by the Spirit of God. We see things that we would not otherwise want to see. And we do what's called grieving of the Spirit when we live in sin. Ephesians 4.30 says this, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed into the day of redemption. And what happens is, so when we do fail... Because understand, if you think you're not going to fail, you're fooling yourself, okay? You're going to fail. You're going to fall prey to something in your flesh, fear, anger, doubt, whatever it is. So something you're going to fall prey to. But what happens is God doesn't let us fail because he wants to beat us or because he wants to punish us. What happens with our failure is God is your biggest fan, okay? God wants you to succeed. So what he's going to do is he's going to take your situation where you fail and he's going to turn around and use it to help you to grow, okay? Proverbs 13, 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. He says, look, he loves those whom he chastens, right? So God allows things. He puts pressure on our lives through the Spirit of God and puts this weight upon us that we feel reproof or pressure, whatever it is, so that we can be, get out of the situation, right? If you know you're wrong and someone just goes, it's okay. You know what? There's lots of people who do it. You're fine. It's good. Hey, I've done that too. Don't worry about it. What I'm doing is I'm now, what's the word you're saying? What's the word you're uh, enabling. enabling? That's the word. You're enabling them to continue in sin. The Spirit of God doesn't do that. The Spirit of God doesn't say, oh, it's okay. You have this feeling in your heart when you know you've done something, and it's just like, oh, you can find no rest. And no matter how far you hide, and no matter who you seclude yourself from, guess what? You can't escape the Spirit of God. Because guess what? He lives inside of you. You can't escape. So as here you are trying to go, you know what? I'm just going gonna, gonna to distract myself. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to take a nap. And you find yourself having a dream about that very issue. You wake up thinking about that very issue. You're trying to distract yourself, and you go, man, it just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back. And it's illuminating the sin in our lives. Hebrews 7, 12, 6 is this. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth, man. Scourgeth means punish every son whom he receiveth. So he says, look, he's going to help you to address your sin through the Spirit of God that's illuminating those dark parts of us. So the Spirit reveals and confronts sin by bringing it to light, John three nineteen, And this is the condemnation, 
that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It talks about light and dark. Bottom line is, our sin is darkness. If you get yourself caught up in a sinful mindset or a sinful lifestyle, it's darkness. It's darkness. But yet the light can come and change everything. So we see here the next thing that it does in regards to illumination. It does something really cool as well. This is really awesome. This, is probably, this might be one of my favorite parts. So last week, we studied the table of showbread, right? And we saw there, we saw Christ pictured in the, in the table. We looked at the loaves, and we saw that it actually pictures the Word. We saw a picture of Christ, but it also pictures the Word of God, okay? So here, I want you to imagine this. If you were in the ancient tabernacle, right? If you were there right now, and it's pitch black other than this candle, and as this candle's burning, and you look from the south side where you're standing by the candlestick, and you look to your right, you're going to see the table. And on the table, you'll see the bread. Without the light, guess what? You wouldn't see the bread. So what we find is the light illuminates the Word, okay? The light illuminates the Word. This is a cool, cool thing, very cool thing. So we look at here at 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 through 14. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. This, in fact, if you ever hear people talking about this is heaven, that is, a, that is improperly taught, that is talking about Scripture. It's very clear. The next verse tells us that. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Check this out. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Check this out. Verse 13. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth. Okay? but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, verse 14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. If we're going to understand the Word of God, making a translation of the Bible that has words that make it easier for you to follow is not what you're going to get. You might give a man's version, you might give a, a peripheral version or information from the Scripture, but bottom line is God reveals it through the Scripture. The Bible reveals the Bible. If you want to understand something in the Scripture, use the Scripture to define it, man. It is amazing how the, God op- how the Bible opens itself up through spiritual things. And what happens is you and I, our understanding was darkened. You and I come from a world where that's the reality of who we are. We were that natural man. A natural man means someone who is lost. And we can't understand the Word of God. And you find after you get saved and you start to read a little bit, some, some things kind of stand out a little bit. And you're like, well, that's interesting. I never saw that before. I've read that before and it never made any sense. But all of a sudden the Spirit of God starts to clicky things together. Next thing you know, things start crisscrossing. You're like, man, check this out. Ephesians 1.18 says this, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. As we study his word, man, it just starts to come to life. I'm telling you right now, the Bible is more exciting to me now than it's ever been in the entire time that I've been studying. I've been saved for 19 years, and I've been studying the Bible for 19 years. And I'm telling you, the more I study and the more God opens up, the more exciting it becomes and the more you start to see. And it just starts, it just grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And then as you read, you're just like, man, I really don't know much. You know, the thing is, it's funny when you first get started, you're like, yeah, I got the gist. Yeah, guy in a boat, a couple people in the garden, people got killed, guy came, died on the cross. Yeah, I got it. I pretty much got the whole thing, right? And then you start to really read the Bible and you're like, 
Why, why, why does it say that? Why does that word, why is that relevant? And why does it show up again there? And, what, what is, and you start to see the pictures of a guy's teaching from the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament, guys, it's like a picture book when you teach kids to read, right? You don't start with words. You start with pictures because pictures are easy for human beings to follow. So God said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you a picture book, and I'm going to give you the same thing in words. And all the concepts you see in the New Testament, they're all fortified by the pictures that are in the Scripture in the Old Testament. And the two work together to teach us truths that we could not otherwise understand. It is just awesome. Anyway, I could get on a sidetrack on that for a while. But, so, now check this out. Psalm 119, 18. This is a fantastic verse. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. So the Spirit of God fills us, it corrects us, it guides us, and it teaches us. (laughs) All this is pictured, guys, in the candlestick, which I just think is so incredibly cool. So here we see this candlestick, this golden candlestick in midst in the tabernacle. So much more than just a light. First, it's a clear and beautiful picture of our Savior as the light of the world. Then, second, at the same time, it is an incredible picture of the Spirit of God. And as we look at the Spirit of God, we see it broken as three different things that would happen, right? First of all, the life-giving Spirit that fills us. The moment you receive Christ, man, and you go from being that dead soul, right? And if you want to imagine the way it kind of functions, because you are a, you're a body, you're a soul, and you're a spirit. We're all three in one, the same that's way God designed us. And if you want to imagine, uh, Pastor Mark Trotter gives a great example of a football. And he said, if you want to imagine a football, a football has an outer skin, right? That's your body. Then you have your, the rubber bladder inside. That's your soul. The problem is when we're dead, when we're, when we're lost, it's flat. It has no air in it. And then what happens, the Spirit of God comes in and and now the body, the soul, and the Spirit, and it is alive. So there's that first thing to going from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Then the next thing, that light that shines in the darkness of the human heart to reveal sin, right? It shines in all those little nooks and crannies of all the things we try to hide amongst the spider webs of our heart not to address. God, the light shines and reveals them. And then the last thing it does the miraculous power to open up the scripture and show us the word of God, to teach the believer the truth of the word, man. It's incredible. So understand, guys, if you're a child of God, there's at least two of these that you've experienced, okay? So we talk about the first, the first one, being reproved of sin, right? Recognizing it. What happens when you came to Christ, the Holy Spirit of God was drawing you, and it was a point in time when you saw your lost condition for what it was, And the light of the gospel came into your heart and you finally saw, you know what? Oh my goodness, I'm lost and undone. On my own right now, I'm on my way to hell. There's no doubt about it. I don't have hope in my heart. I have darkness. I have fear. I have all of these issues that I'm struggling with. And that boy, that moment when you receive Christ, you experience that one, man, that, that, the reproving of sin. Then we have the aspect of here of being filled, right? Being filled with sin, filled with the spirit. You experience that. Bottom line is you experience salvation. You experience, first of all, the repentance. Then you experience the salvation. But then there's a third one, the enlightenment of the word, right? And there's a lot of people. Unfortunately, we live in a country that is spiritually illiterate. There are so many people that have Bibles that don't read them. Or if they read it, they don't know what they're reading because guess what? They've got all kinds of jacked up versions or they've got horrible doctrine that they've been taught. And God's saying, look, I just want to spiritually feed you. Can you just come with an open heart and let me speak to your heart? If we don't spend time in it, guess what? We can't learn. Some people go, I spent about 20 minutes reading that. I really got a little bit lost, so I didn't go back. 
What if that was the way you did school? <laughs> when you went trigonometry class the first time, you're like, I gave it 20 minutes and I pretty much didn't get it, so I think I'm done. It would be unreasonable, right? It takes the Bible says that we're supposed to, to study to show thyself approved. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, right? So we're supposed to study. And if we'll put the work in, guess what God will do? Through his spirit, he will reveal to us the things that we could know in no way understand on our own. So if you've not experienced that third one, now's the time. Now's the time. The days grow short. And understand, this is the whole thing. It's not just about teaching us how to become better us, right? That's the Laodicean mindset. We go, well, I'm going to read the Bible because I want knowledge, because I want to be better. Is it good? Yes, that's an important part of it. But that's not it. Understand, if it was about intimacy with God, God would save you and kill you because in heaven you'd be a lot more intimately close to God there than you would be here, right? People are like, well, I just want to work on my relation with God. I met a guy one time. He said, you know, I was talking about the gospel, and he's in some seminaries nearby. And he's like, well, I'm more of a, uh, uh, what did he say? He said, I'm more of a, uh, uh, I can't remember how he worded it. Basically, he said, look, I, I, I just, I write, I write papers and stuff like that. So I'm more on the scholastic, that's what he said, I'm more on the scholastic end of evangelization. I'm like, oh, okay. So that means you don't talk to anybody. You just study a bunch of stuff and write some papers. Yeah, pretty much. That's the gist of what he was saying. Because I was talking about being gospel, you know, being willing to share our stories, being willing to talk and reach the world. But his thing was, I'm going to write stories and write things in books. The problem is, because we're Laodicean, is we like to get knowledge. We like to feel important. We like to be smart. And what we find is the fact that we're all about ourselves. And what God's saying is, you know what? I gave you the spirit, not so that you can become a better you, but so that I can, I can now take your life. And by improving you, I can now use you as a vessel to reach someone else. That's the point of this life. If you get hung up on the thing that you think it's all about you, it's about information. It's not about information. It's about trans. It's about transformation. You and I are not supposed to stay the way we are. As God reveals sin, deal with it. As God reveals the word, study it. As God, made us, as God draws us to do things, man, respond. The most frustrating thing to me, and I, I, don't, and I know I talked to other pastors and stuff like that, and it's like, I just want to mobilize the body to do something for the Lord. Because I know our time is short. And if I could implore you to do something, read the word not to become smarter in the word of God so you can have arguments with people and try to prove how right you are. No, let it transform your life so that you become burdened for the souls of men and women and boys and girls who are slipping off this earth for a second, man. They're dropping off this planet and they're dropping straight into hell because not because they're bad people. We are bad people. We're all bad people. It's not that. They just don't know. The Bible says, how shall they know unless they have a preacher? That's not me, guys. That's us. A preacher is someone that shares the good news. And I'm imploring you to not just sit here and go, yeah, this was good. I'll apply this to my life. No. That's what we do because we're Laodiceans. We go, I'm going apply this to my life. I'm going to get better. I've got my notes and I'm going to review this for me. No. What can God do to change you, to have you now reach the world? What can he do to make you better so that when you interact with somebody, instead of just sharing stories or laughing and slapping them on the back and sending them on their way, on their way to hell, what if you said, hey, you know what? Did you know? Did I tell you what God did in my life? Amen. Have I told you who I was? Have I told you where he, what he did in my life? That I have a hope in my heart that I never had before. And you know what? I want the same for you. 
You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to have a whole lot of scripture. Just have a heart for people and know where to point them. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's the basic gospel message. It's the good news, man. That's what it's all about, the good news. And we lose sight of it because we're so filled with self that all we want to do is get better for our sake. Understand, man. Guys, the teacher is ready. He's ready. The Spirit of God lives within you. He is ready to open that scripture to you and show you things that you cannot imagine. Blow your hair back, man. Some days you sit down and read and you're just like, boosh, you're like, dang, check that out. I mean, it's just awesome. And then what happens is we, we hold on to it. Man, let, let it spur a conversation with someone. And if someone asks you a question, instead of holding on to your knowledge and being afraid to speak, what if you just tried a little bit? What if you took a stack of gospel tracts? I have them stacked back there. I stack them up and guess what? Week after week, one pile's gone. One or two's gone. I'm probably not going to see that many people. Guys, my truck, I have a stack of tracks this tall. And you know what? In about two weeks, they're gone. Everywhere we go, and I'm not, I'm not your example. Good, good, goodness gracious, I'm not your example. But I'm saying, have a heart for people. You go to a store, you interact with somebody, you smile at them. Instead of leaving, go, you know, I hope they made their day better. What if you said, hey, you know what? What if I gave them the truth? Hey, you know what? I just want to give you a little something from our church. Just a quick little Bible study. But it's really an incredible thing how you can have hope in your life and really a relationship with Jesus. He changed my life. I'd love to give that to you. Man, my wife and I go to fast food. You stop and get fast food. I know you shouldn't eat fast food, but I'm just saying, periodically it does happen. And you look in the window and you go, how many people are working back there? Uh, there's seven of us. I tell you what, one, two, three, four, five. Would you make sure everybody back there gets one of those? Would you please? That would really mean a lot to me. I'm the pastor of the church locally, and I'd love for these people to get this. Yeah. And it's so cool because they feel like you've given them a mission. They're like, okay, here you go. I can see them in the window. And you, walk, and you drive by and you see people standing there reading. I'm like, man, that's the gospel. That's why the tracks are there, not so they look pretty. It's so you can put them in somebody's hands because it tells somebody how they can come to know Christ. Guys, someone cared about us at one point in time to share the gospel. Someone told us the truth. The light shined into our life, revealed our lost condition. We repented of our sin. We fell on our knees. We felt the Spirit of God come within us. God did a work in our life, and now He's saying, look, I got something else for you. If it was just about you, I would have taken you home. But since it's not about you, it's about them, I left you there with a mission, a ministry of reconciliation. So here we are. Will we stay in the darkness or will we come to the light of God? He's ready for us. He's waiting on us. I implore you, when you leave today, take a stack of tracks with you. If you want more, I'll give you more. Open your mouth. Share your story. Let your light touch somebody. <laughs> we're not promised tomorrow. The Bible's clear. Life is out of vapor. It appears for a short time and then vanishes away. There are people that are taking their breath right now who had no idea this was their last day. We don't know. But let's, let's leave this place doing something for him and not for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for today. And Lord, just the truth of the message. And God, I know there was a lot to cover. And Lord, I did my best to get out of the way. I don't feel like I just hope I did good enough. I, I have a burden in my heart to reach this lost world. And I just want us to, as a team, as a body, to do that. God, I want us to touch people. I want our lives to make a difference. I don't want to stand before you, Lord, ashamed. I have many things to be sorry for, and I'm sorry. 
Lord, I want us to cross the line of the race of life, sprinting for souls, not caught up in self. So as we address the issues of dealing with our own hearts and our own flesh, God, help us, Father, to be emptied of self and filled with the Spirit of God, that, Lord, you might help us to walk in the Spirit, that we might fulfill your will and not our own. Lord, I just pray that you help us to be serious about the things of God and the souls of men and women and boys and girls. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, (laughs) that spoke to me. I don't feel like I'm doing enough. And I want to do more. If that's you today, as a testament to what God did in your heart, if you raise your hand, I'm not going to call you out. Just say, you know what? I feel like God wants me to do more and I'm not doing enough. If you'll raise your hand as a testament to him and just say, you know what? That's me. My hand's in the air, guys. I don't know about you guys. I know I need to do more. Yes. May God do a work in us. And if you're here today and you say, you know what? You can put your hands down. You're here today and you say, you know what? I don't know. I don't know the Lord. I don't know the peace you're talking about. I'm in the darkness. If you're watching this online, you're watching this recorded or wherever you are, and you say, you know what? I'm in the darkness. Guess what? The light is waiting on you. This is not about religion. This is not about a a spiritual experience. This is not about an emotional experience. This is about the God of the universe calling your heart. And as the Spirit of God calls you and you respond, God will save you. Understand, I'm not talking about something you did in a church one day when you felt an emotional experience and you came down and someone prayed over you. That's not that this is. This is an opportunity for you to open your heart to the Holy Spirit of God to fill you and indwell you. If he's there, you'll know it because there's a change in your life. But if you sit there today and you said, you know what, I'm not sure. There's a good chance you need him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. It won't be the words of the prayer. It will not be a ceremony of any sort. This is between the heart of a broken person and the God of the universe. And as he calls your heart, and you'll know if he's calling because you'll feel it. And as you respond by turning to him and surrendering your will to his, he'll save your soul. And you will have the indwelling spirit of God living within you for eternity. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive that greatest gift that God's ever given, the Spirit of God, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. In your heart and your mind, if you're online, pray out loud. But ask the Lord through this prayer to sincerely come into your heart. If you say the prayer but you don't mean it, it'll do nothing for you. This is a matter of the heart. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to pray this prayer and receive Christ as your Savior, from your heart, if you want to pray it, He will save you. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am sorry. The Spirit of God is is, is dealing with me right now and I know it. And I'm ready to give up my will for yours. God, I'm asking you right now to forgive me of sin, to pay the price that I could not pay to come into my life, come into my heart, and save me. Lord, thank you for loving me, and thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.